uh, Tom Green did a show for a while with Ed McMahon of the Tonight Show fame. And uh, Ed McMahon, obviously, professional guy, been doing this for a long time. And Tom Green would see him in the hallway and they'd just start talking. And then Ed McMahon would stop him and say, hey, don't leave it in the hallway. Like, save this conversation, this sort of like natural like banter for the show. So we're going to be quiet. That's, that's the well, no, not be quiet. Just like, I think it's a good question. I don't want you to answer the question until we get on the show. We have an exciting announcement for you guys this week. We here at Beam Radio are excited to be a media sponsor at this year's Rabbit MQ Summit in mid-July. We are especially excited because we are participating, a few of us, in the event this year. We've got a keynote talk from yours truly together with Steven Nunez, and our talk is titled bringing a Ferrari to a horse race. And that's all I'll tell you about it. You'll have to go to the website to learn more. So what does this mean for you guys? You guys get good stuff. You get a discount. You can use code BEAMRADIO15. That's the numbers one five. When you get your Rabbit MQ Summit tickets and you'll get 15% off those tickets. And we also have two free tickets that we are excited to be raffling off to our listeners. All you have to do is hit us up with your questions just like you've been doing. Tweet at BEAMRADIO1, tag process mailbox and ask us your questions about all things beam you'll get your question answered on the air and we'll enter you to win one of our two free tickets to rabbit mq summit so we really hope to see you guys there in july what's up everybody thanks for tuning in to beam radio all right hello and welcome to this week's edition of beam radio as always we are joined by our fabulous panel of hosts, we have Lars Vickman. Hey, Lars. Hey, hey. Welcome, Lars, and Alex Kutmo. Howdy, howdy. Hi, Alex. We've got Stephen Nunez. Hello. Hey, Stephen, and of course, Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hi from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Awesome. So before we get into all of the great stuff that we have to chat about today, I would love to hand it back over to you, Bruce, for a word from our wonderful sponsor, Graxio. Yeah, by this time, we should be well into the Ecto material. And it's been a lot of fun to kind of think about Ecto, not in terms of the features and the various mappings it does, but from how do you build layered software in it? So I did the first couple of videos. It's been a lot of fun so far. Hope you guys will join us. We've been asking you, our fabulous listeners, to submit your questions through our quote process mailbox, uh, which is a pun that we're getting a kick out of. So on Twitter, hit us up at beamradio one let us know all your Elixir and Beam related questions. And we have a question in the process mailbox today from Johan Madison. And Johan asks us, what are you missing in Elixir that you have in other languages that you've previously used? Is there something in Elixir that stops that particular thing from coming to life? Yes, mutable states. <laughs> How dare you? How but are dare you missing you? it? You're missing that, Lars? Are you sure you're on the uh, right Every podcast? time I'm... Every time I'm trying to hack together a gnarly script, uh, I do miss some, me some good mutable state. Uh, there are good reasons why I should be missing it. And I, Elixir takes great pain, uh, as did Erlang, to avoid mutable state. So uh, it's very reasonable that I don't have it. But sometimes I miss it. Sometimes it makes things easy. And then it makes things really hard later on. Lars, you're a terrible person. <laughs> no, it's, I try. We, I try. We feel you. We feel you. I, I do think that there are some things that the nature of the beam and the nature of the development under under Elixir has kind of gotten right, but compromises have consequences, right? So 
One of the things that I have missed is this idea that there's not a secure sandbox, right? So Sophie and I, um, actually Stephen and I have kind of talked a little bit about some things that we can do with live book in the classroom, but we need to kind of, we need a way to kind of slide this process into a slot that lives in Siberia somewhere, right? You know, wrapped around Docker around, you know, I kind of feel like I'm, I mean, the emperor's new groove saying you put that box in a box, put the box in another box, right? But so the, the security is, an, is one of them. And another one, it's, it would be a different thing. It wouldn't actually be Elixir, but the idea of a more formal statically typed system does have some, some pros, but it also has some significant drawbacks. And I think that we could see that from the community trying to attack this problem with one solution after another. I mean, we've seen Norm from the, the great Chris Keithley, we've seen kind of the dialyzer and the dialixer and with the with the type system around components and surface, we kind of see the, the surface types. And, and so we're kind of dancing around that. We clearly feel that pain, but we also get a lot of benefits from not having to be mired into that and, and getting reliability without those, those kinds of features. Yeah, I'm gonna shock you guys perhaps as much as Lars just has shocked the rest of us by saying that, um, you know, that is the thing that I like about Go. I said a nice thing about Golang. Um, I've sort of gotten- Who are you people? I know, right? We're having a weird day, I guess. I've really gotten used to the static typing in Go, especially when it comes to just navigating around like a legacy code base and just kind of being able to understand exactly what type of data something expects um, and just the whole mindset that you get to adopt when you're working with static typing it makes it makes your approaching to it makes your approach to testing very different as well because um, there's less like I need to exercise you know all the corner cases of all the types of data that this could interact with for example because you don't have that flexibility so that is something that definitely resonates with me Bruce and I was going to mention norm as well. But uh, it's interesting though, because when I'm working with Go, then I'll sometimes feel very constrained by that typing. So I don't know, you want, you want somehow want the best of both worlds. And I think Norm is, is an interesting uh, compromise between the two. Yeah, to me, it's, it's absolutely extraordinary that we've seen such reliability out of a language and, and an ecosystem really without those guard rails in place. It's, it's one of the, the great paradoxes, right? The, the place that you're supposed to get reliability is by correctness and, and all of this rigor in, installed in your brain with the compiler, right? Um, and, and instead, we have this, this kind of, um, we get the reliability from somewhere else. Did you try turning it off and on again? It just seems so wrong and so casual that, hey, we're going to make bad, bad mistakes, and we're going to recover from them by just, oh, well, you know, start it over, right? It's, it's a weird thing. Yeah, my, my thing that I missed, and it's kind of a piggyback off of Lars's uh, nitpick, was uh, like a, a good collection of uh, data structures in the, uh, in the language and the runtime. And I think that comes with, uh, you know, with, uh, with immutability, just given that the data structures that we have at our, uh, at our disposal are persistent data structures. So I, I don't want to go down the Java route where we have like, you know, super buffer version of, you know, array, super buffer version of Q and all these weird, you know, esoteric data structures, but uh, like a larger collection of, of data structures might be useful, but it does come at a cost where it's, it's, it's tough to write these in a way where they are immutable. 
Yeah, and the cost of not having those data structures has really hit Elixir hard in ways that we don't expect. You know, for example, Index is all about more than anything else building a type structure around NIFs that gives us the mutability with large arrays called tensors. I mean, that's that's the fundamental abstraction. Um, you know, and you can kind of layer on a few more. There's the live the live book. Which is which is really important, but there's also this idea of the auto grad, auto diff. But I, I would argue people just haven't tried these things because of the the lack of data structures, and um, you know it's just a testament to the the flexibility of of the Beam and and Elixir that Jose and Sean were able to kind of work around that problem so quickly. Yeah, and I was definitely going to mention the the escape hatch that is NIFS. So maybe like maybe maybe this isn't a problem at all where we could just you know kind of pull that lever and say, okay, this it's time to eject from uh, immutability land and go into, into mutable land and we could just reach for a NIF anytime we, uh, anytime we need it. But uh, yeah, I don't know, just something I noticed, yeah. Yeah, for me, I think the, uh, you know, if, the, if we're addressing the idea of like what stops Elixir from coming to life, I think it's early Elixir education. I don't mean for like my three-year-old. I mean, like you are, interested in starting like a web project and it, it's reasonable that you're going to pick up like express or rails because it's like you can fumble through enough tutorials to like you know put something together um but i doubt anyone would go for phoenix at like the, as their first tool um and i think that's interesting because it speaks to a couple of things one of them is we were attracted to elixir because we had context on programming and what languages can do. And our eyes were set on concurrency and distribution and fault tolerance and all. And if you talk to somebody who has never programmed or is just interested in getting like a blog up, those are not the things they would focus on. Not for a while at least, or not consciously, right? We're excited about supervision trees and different restart strategies. And they're just like, so how do I make the page show up on the, how do I get the HTML on the page? Show me that. So I, I feel like because what draw like the funnel into Elixir is I am programmer. Oh, this is way better than my paradigm as opposed to I am human who would like to program. We don't see things like, you know, short blog posts on, uh, you know, destructuring, you know, arrays and how arrays actually work, right? There's, there's something missing there that is like an on-ramp into it so that you can easily pick up like Phoenix or serving simple actions in Phoenix. There's something missing. That's that's my thing. And we get new lifeblood, we get uh, it quote unquote comes to life. Yeah, really feel you on that one, Stephen, is especially with, with the mentor group that, that I'm working, we've worked together on and, and Sophie and I have worked together on. We probably lose um, half to two thirds of, of the people that we lose in the first two to four weeks. It just just because of overcoming that initial friction, and um, you know some of that, I think that we have some solutions in sight, like like for example, live book, but but actually the story, what can you do before you install that that first thing and all the tools and and um, I mean, God forbid if you're on Windows, then then you have to, you know, there's there's a there's a whole side of this this ecosystem that's underdocumented. And is really frustrating from from a, a new learner experience. Yeah, I'm glad we managed to work our education angle in there. I definitely agree with everything that you guys both laid out. All right, so thank you to our listeners who have been submitting questions. I will remind you that you could win a free T-shirt, and it is a very nice T-shirt at that. 
So hit us up on Twitter at BeamRadio1 and let us know what questions you have for the process mailbox. We have got one announcement for you guys before we move on to the main event. Uh, some of you might know that SpawnFest is coming up. SpawnFest is an online development contest for the Beam. It is free to enter and participate. And Grazio, our fabulous sponsor, is actually offering an annual subscription to the winning team. So that's obviously a huge deal. And if that doesn't inspire you to get involved, I don't know what does. So check out SpawnFest at SpawnFest.org and we'll put that link in the show notes. All right, so on to, as I said, the main event for today. Our host for today's episode is Lars and he has got some uh, great topics lined up for us. But before we get into that, Lars, what's new? What's new in Lars land? Oh, I like that. I just came up with that. <laughs> Lars land, yeah. <laughs> The west of Sweden, also known as Larsland. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I guess Larsland is mostly underjord.io. And most recently, like the newsletter continues, the blog continues. But more recently, I have been dipping my toe into a lot of live streaming, uh, primarily Elixir content, or actually exclusively Elixir content. So it's been, uh, I sit down and hash out something interesting for roughly an hour. Ideally, it's interesting. Ideally, it only takes me an hour. Um, and I've been posting those for uh, both later viewing and uh, I announce the, the live streams on Twitter and stuff. And also I've launched another podcast. And just to make sure no one's worried, it does not compete with Beam Radio. Uh, it is very widely programming related and I'm talking to a mostly Python programmer, friend of mine, uh, and that's at regprog.com. So it's called regular programming. And you can find references to all of this stuff on undo.io slash free dash stuff.html. So look for free stuff in the menu at undo.io and you'll, you'll find the stuff I do. It was a lot of fun to come across that live book video that you did right as it was being developed and, and actually kind of uh, you know, sneaking in there, uh, actually in, in, in learning Elixir kind of collaboratively on it. I, I thought that that was a really cool move. And yeah, so that's actually extremely entry-level content. Uh, I think I'm, <laughs> me, and, me and my friend, same friend that I'm doing the podcast with, I'm sitting down and teaching him Elixir using Elixir school, but shoving it into Livebook. So we're sitting there collaboratively playing with the interpreter and going through things like numbers and enumerables and collections. So, uh, so far really enjoying the curriculum and it's, it's fun to just revisit all of it. He's an experienced developer, but he doesn't know Elixir and he does want to. So it's like it's my been dream a, a combination of tools. Like you're using Elixir School, you're using Livebook. Um, yeah, it was super cool to check out your video. I'm just so curious though, how you're finding Livebook as a teaching tool, because I'm very interested in kind of exploring that a little bit uh, for some other stuff that might be coming up for yeah, us. Yeah, I, I know they're adding cursors to show where people are. That's going to be very important. Because <laughs> right now it's like, oh, this worked. And I'm like, I don't even know what field he's on. <laughs> this is going to get weird. I think it can be a very useful teaching tool, but the security aspect is, of course, one important bit. I think what Frank has been doing with Nerves and Livebook, where essentially you burn an image to a Raspberry Pi Zero and it starts up and then it 
shows you, it provides you a web server with Livebook on it. And you can just go in there uh, and make it blink and stuff. That is a really compelling use of it. Uh, and I think there's a there's more where that came from. I'm, there's a lot more you can do with Livebook. But the security aspect is important. You can't just shove it on the internet and share it. Or you can, but then you're also offering your server for free. <laughs> That's a that's a conversation in our future. I'm sure that that this is this use case of actually reducing friction for whole platform. I mean, imagine being able to to jump in, have a pre-burned Raspberry Pi, and then to be able to mix and install dependencies, and then be able to um, be able to, for example, work with the outputs of a given sensor as you're shaping the sensor before you even write a line of code in a repository. I mean, that's that to me starts to get get into some of the adoption problems around NERVS, right? It's like it's NERVS has all of the adoption problems that we've talked about, all of the er early friction that we've talked about. And then you kind of layer on hardware concepts and you really have to have a, a bare, um, a slice of knowledge about OTP. And then you have to know the bytes and scripts and so, and if, if you could just blow away like a whole cross section of that friction just for a little while, just for long enough to get someone interested and hooked, it's it's really a huge thing. And that's that's I, I would love to do that as a um, a nervous topic later on. And and by the way, um, you know, thanks to Jonathan and Jose who have who have really worked hard to um, to keep the nerve stuff going and, and really reduce the friction for that team and 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 open up this this whole new um, area of elixir it's it's really been kind of a fantastic collaboration in the community and I think we actually have a segue into our topic there somewhere so partly from the thing Stephen brought up earlier where the elixir community tends to focus on building fairly serious systems, I dare say. It's like reliability, scalability, concurrency, like a healthy design bottom from the bottom up where the, the potential is enormous, but it does come with some additional complex concerns that you might not even hear about starting with Rails or starting with JavaScript. And those like we can know that those are there for a reason and that it's not overwrought necessarily it's just it's just a little bit complicated because the world and software is complicated and if you don't if you don't explicitly address complexity it's still there <laughs> but that's also something that risks turning elixir into sort of this this domain of experts and i have seen a fair number of less experienced Elixir devs get very confused about contexts. So they figure out what a controller is. It's something that makes the thing go, like that actually does stuff uh, and ends up rendering it to the page. They can figure out what a live view does because that also does stuff and makes things go on the page. I think there's mental models for picking up schemas because they are the shape of your data. That's where, like, I use the schema to shove it at the database. Okay, sweet. What's the context? It's not really a thing <laughs> in that sense, where the other 
the other things are part of making things happen. Contexts are mostly sort of an organizational construct and has to do with system design and long-term maintainability and setting sort of boundaries for your code. I think it's sort of nebulous and it does tend towards sort of more experienced topics, I think, compared to other parts of Phoenix. And contexts are presented as a part of Phoenix, but there's no tools there beside the generator, I think. So thoughts on this. I, I see Bruce hopping in his seat, basically. So I want to hear what Stephen has to say first. Well, well. So, I mean, I think it's interesting to, to look at how the idea of a context was born in the Elixir community in general. So I have Phoenix apps that have uh, models. So not schemas, but models. Um, and then eventually we moved over to the idea of schemas because we weren't really doing object orientation. And then we had these fat controllers and they're like, we need this thing, this, this one place that actually shows you what the app does. Uh, and we came up with context. It's highly influenced by the, uh, the work of Eric Evans from the Domain Driven Design book. I think that's one of the things that's confusing. We'll get back to that in a second. Uh, but the idea was we need one module that you call and it really does the things. And then it makes your controllers kind of just participants in the system. You know, you give it some input, you get some output, you handle the web stuff, you handle the redirect, you handle the rendering, the error. Um, I think that that's sort of an interesting uh, way to put it, but it also becomes kind of a junk drawer too, if you're not careful, right? Um, Sasha Yurik talks a lot about this in some of his recent writings where he puts more stuff in the controllers than I see other people doing, but I agree with it. So a lot of, for instance, uh, REST is uh, weakly typed, right? It's just, you just get data with, with string maps. Um, so all of your typecasting and filtering happens in your controller. And then you finally call down to your context, which has business things, right? Business logic are my favorite things. Um, and I also see similarities to what Bruce has come up with, with uh, doing fun things with the, the, the hardest working of worker bees. Uh, and I think that there's also a little bit of confusion there where exactly what well, has a boundary map to a context? Is it the same thing? Is the controller the boundary? Is the, or is that something else? And then inside of my context, can I call other contexts? Is that okay? Like what is sort of the line? Um, yeah. No, no. Uh, boundary is another library and it's by Sasha. <laughs> There you go. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so so James Gray and I um, worked for a couple of years on a book on, on many of these concepts. And so the idea in the book was to look at OTP design. And then after a while, James said, you know, he had a very strong opinion that what we want to build is a book about elixir design and um, and OTP plays a role in it. And so the whole premise was this, this whole concept in broader functional programming that life gets better when you extract and separate code that represents certainty and um, cleanly composable elements. And you wrap those with a boundary that embraces uncertainty and um, in process machinery and things of that this nature, basically things that really shouldn't fail unless there are unless there are application bugs and things that 
can fail. And things that represent user data, which, which is uncertain and unclean um, and, and other types of things. So yes, I mean, you can, you, can build, you can build software that has multiple boundary layers and you usually do. Right, and, and so one of the questions that you have to ask yourself as, as you're building software in the system is what type of layer am I building and what type of, of interface am I hitting? And, and yes, I mean, there are some, some concepts in, the, um, in our boundary layers that, that are uncertain, right? Like um, what is the, the role of this thing in, in the overall system? And the reason that that's true is that the role sometimes changes a little bit depending on how you're layering together your system, right? Like where does your API live? And very often in an Elixir system, the backend services have an API that's generally a context. And then that context wraps around these layers that embrace certainty, for example, we, we all talk about database schemas, but there's one that nobody ever talks about that should usually be extracted, the idea of a query composition layer. So, um, so I think that, that context are, um, are first pretty hard to get for somebody who's stepping into um, Elixir for the first time. Second, I think that they are unfortunately named and I'll claim some responsibility for that. There was, so um, Jose was asking a lot of people what he thought the name should be. And I didn't have a better answer than context. Um, but I think the concept of a boundary and the concept that this should be a skinny layer of code that represents a concept and wraps code that embraces certainty or wraps other interfaces or other processes, I think that that's a, probably a pretty good starting point. Yeah, and I think I think it kind of comes to the territory that it's a like it's a tough thing to nail down because it is it is abstract, right? It's I think it's about as abstract as how do you build software? Because first thing you think about what your what your business problem is and kind of break that down. And I mean, this happens even before you even touch the keyboard or do any kind of coding. Because uh, I mean, if if your contexts are too broad, you'll have one context that does all the things. Maybe it's just like the business context and uh if it's you know too granular maybe you're gonna have too much you know cross context communication so you first need to sit down and think what are the major components of this system and how do they how do they interact with each other and how do they interact with uh, you know my persistence layer uh, and maybe you know maybe each context has a slightly different persistence layer depending on the problems that it's uh, it's attempting to solve uh, but yeah, kind of like like you said, Bruce, where it's a very thin layer that primarily deals with maybe your business logic or your persistence layer, and then the uh, the rest or absinthe or in GraphQL that that is just an interface into your context, kind of like how your test fixtures are also an interface in your, into your context, right? You get, you leverage that's those same contexts to generate your your dummy data or your test data. Uh, and then you use your uh, those same context to fetch data out with you know your REST API or, or GraphQL API. So I think I think before you touch the keyboard and do any coding, you really need to break down what the problem is and kind of what are the logical pieces to it. And you know maybe those are kind of the basis for your uh, your context. And then you kind of figure out what those those interactions look like across the context. I think that part's really hard. <laughs> I think same. I think yes, yeah. that was the yeah. hardest part. Oh my god. Yeah. Do you want to talk about it a little bit, Sophie? I mean, I was just gonna sort of say that like, this was one of the things that 
I actually really struggled with trying to design more for, you know, functional systems than an OO because with object oriented, I really sort of internalized this model of you create an entity that maps to like the the object, the thing you're representing. So the the example that always comes to mind for me is this, uh, this is like the classic intro to OO lesson that we give students at the Flatiron School. And I think it's called like pet store or pet or something. And it's like your first introduction to Ruby classes and you make a like a pet class and then you have a dog class and an owner class and you say that oh the the owner can walk the dog and you start to think about the interaction between these objects and that was baggage that was really hard for me to shake coming into elixir and coming into phoenix and then when context kind of got thrown into the mix i sort of lost the thread a little bit of how to model uh you know a complex elixir application or a complex phoenix application and i think that first step that you're suggesting alex before you write a line of code you sit down and you kind of create your domain map really for your functional system. That is something that I think I still struggle with. I still struggle to kind of understand where to draw the line. What what are the contexts, let's say plural, that make up my system? So I don't know if anyone has advice or tips or if that relates to anything you were thinking, Steven. Yeah, I, I totally cheat sometimes and just make like, the main context to have a place. I know I'm ashamed. I have my app and I have like app.junk drawer. And then I have my top level contexts until I can figure out what they are. Right. I think that's one of those things like the rule of three with refactoring. Like don't pull anything out too soon until you've seen it three times. Right. That by that time you understand the problem, you understand the seams a little better. But I've done that with context as well. We're just like, I know I I know this is good. I said I want a place to define my API. I want to have this top level uh, place to go to but I'm not quite ready to break it out yet because I don't know. Um, and I think that that happens, that, that happens a lot. You'll wind up like just wasting cycles trying to figure out, is this, should I, do I need an accounts context? But it's like, it's not even a real account. It's just sort of like stored here. Is this a special kind of account? So do I need like a third party, like context to link to my accounts? Uh, delay, delay, delay. But there is a, there is a hard rule here, right? So you shouldn't mix the user schema with things that actually access the database. You know, and, and I mean, I, I think that those things belong um, in, in separate layers, almost necessarily, almost always from the beginning. And, and the reason is that the composition rules when you have failure are very different from the composition rules when you have certainty. And so almost always the ninja move in in functional programming is to separate the two as early and as concisely as possible, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with you. I, there are two kinds of splits though, right? There's the vertical split, right? Where we're talking interface boundary, core infrastructure, right? Uh, and then there's sort of like the cross context splits too, which are, I gotcha. think those are really hard to figure out Agreed or then. they can be challenging to figure out. Uh, and you know, potentially expensive to undo, right? Uh, Sophie and I worked on a project where I think we we found the wrong seam. We just found yep. the wrong seam. Yep. That's the nice way to say it, right? Mm -hmm. It's a family-friendly show. So my son might listen to this, so I can't say what I really feel about it. Um, but, and then it wound up hurting because you wind up crossing this boundary and now you're defining interfaces for both. When in reality, it should have just been one thing. And then the cause to bring it back and to fix testing and to have this whole thing done right was expensive. Um, and now, and it, let's consider yeah. the cost of doing that when you're implementing them as microservices. 
I definitely felt that. I mean, thing. I think it was a microservice that we built this into. Oh dear. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, but it was once. I think Lars means like breaking oh, oh, it out. Right, right, right. Imagine yeah. those things were services, and we're talking over like an event bus or APIs or something like that. Yeah. That yeah. Yeah. I, I've definitely been involved in a in systems where we've sliced the system into what we thought were reasonable microservices, and it's like, no, all of this should have been one service. It's all interconnected. It's all relations all the time, and you end up actually wanting to make perform joins over <laughs> yeah, over your and RPC. I think that's where that's where you get people hating on microservices um because it's easy to go overboard for sure something about the way we're talking about contexts here this is very system design this is very sort of abstract and high level by necessity we're talking about some concrete things like, okay, yeah, input validation and like, oh, we're working with pure functions, then we can I do that part over here. But if you're talking to a true beginner, they have no, like, oh, things that can fail and things that won't fail. Like, <laughs> uh, that's in, in my experience, um, like figuring out how to put the thing in the map and make it go as the right return value and make the right thing hook up to the other thing and call a function like sometimes the threshold is much much lower than that and it takes a fair bit before in my experience developers are ready to sort of sit down and think abstractly or rather think at the high level like okay what is the system we're building not just how do i make it go I was actually just going to hand it over to you, Bruce, because I would say that I really don't feel that context truly made sense to me until um, you put it into the context, pun intended, of like core and boundary layer. So treating the context, not just as like an entity that represents an idea in my application, but as the boundary between this functional core and like the uncertain outside world, that's when I really started to feel like I understood what yeah. the context is for and where to put code. Yeah, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And so when James and I started working together, really, uh, I credit James with all of the intellectual heavy lifting on the book. And I claim credit for the accessibility of those concepts. So one of the very first things that we did was, was talk about the concepts of these, these complex concepts in the in in the context of a mental mnemonic right do fun things with big loud worker bees right so data functions test that's your core boundaries life cycles and workers which are dependencies that's that's your boundary and so in the context of otp that made a lot of sense and so that was really two-thirds of the formula i think and and once i started thinking about the composition in the core I came up with this, this idea, this, this pattern that, that's been shown over and over. But, but we, we broke out the concept, we, we labeled the concept CRC. And Sophie, when we started writing about it in those terms, then everything kind of, kind of opened up and, and people started getting the concepts. And, then, and we could kind of reinforce the idea that if you want to if you want to do a little bit of work in the core at a time, then you have to have the layering system there as well. And then you have to prepare the work. That's your constructor. You have to do a little piece of work. That's your reducer. You have to present your work to something else that needs 
that needs to consume the data that you're building and that's your converter. And, and when we broke those things out, everything opened up. I think that's a much more concrete in many ways. You can actually show, show what that is in a much clearer way than, than what a context sort of abstractly is. I also think that they're sort of hampered just by the fact that we don't go use phoenix.context. I mean, I've seen people be confused, like, is this my context at all? Because it's just a module and it doesn't, it doesn't do anything special. And that gets, that gets weird in a framework right. like Phoenix where almost every part is very particular. It has a lot of supporting sort of systems and suddenly you have some functions you didn't have before. Like there's some magic in Phoenix and it's a lot of useful magic, but contexts are just modules. Right, so, so I think that one of the things that hampers us as a community is there are a whole bunch of different versions of the right thing to do and the right terminology. And when we can't talk about these things in, in common terms, then, then it, it hampers what we can do in, in for example, documentation. Like I, I haven't felt the freedom to, um, to kind of jump into you know, different communities and, and work on documentation and, and the vocabulary. I think that there's some tension as kind of an author that's promoting a concept in a book, jumping into the middle of, of some type of project or, or ideas. So what I've tried to do is, is said, hey, when you label these things in this way, you get these benefits and try to have some ideas um, take root that way. So I do think that when we teach the concepts, giving people that place of certainty first and teaching people to do the compositions first that are certain and when I can do the CRC and then say, okay, but this thing can break when it interfaces with the real world, when you have database layers, how do you handle errors? So the composition is going to shift, for example, from pipes to width, right? Or to exceptions. And these are the trade-offs. And then you could start to kind of layer the learning experience. And, and I think that all those things are important. And I will say, I've definitely seen benefits from working with context essentially getting into Elixir, they didn't exist at the very beginning when I was starting, but then I picked them up right about when they launched. And using them, I've definitely seen some advantages, uh, just going with the bog standard generated context, just due to, so for example, I built a Telegram bot. It has essentially two APIs. It talks to Telegram. Uh, so it gets data in that way and it talks and it shows you things in, via live view. And that's a very nice case where you don't feel, you don't have to shove anything at the web layer. You just, you just call things in your context. It's like, okay, yeah, I want to take this message and I want to make a note of it. Okay. I, I go to my notes context and I create a note that can take care of persisting the note. It can take care of informing anyone who's listening for notes about the notes existence. And then the live view, whenever that wants to list new, list all the notes, it can talk to the context. And these two things never have to talk to each other. 
but that also sort of gets me into how do you feel that it fits with live view and sort of pub sub is pub sub an okay api for for talking through a context because uh like where where does pub sub fit in because it's not input or an output values it's a side channel essentially yeah i think that's such a good question and before i i, I do want to talk about the pub sub uh piece of it but i also kind of want to say as you were talking it i really just started thinking about um using your context as this boundary layer and how it's such a different pattern from the first web framework that I really ever learned or kind of developed an expertise in, which is Rails. And in Rails, of course, you have the classic like MVC pattern. But actually, and hopefully this isn't going to be me like bad math and Rails too much because, you know, Rails is great. Use it every day. But the MVC pattern for a very long time has not been sufficient. And I think any, you know, Rails application of any maturity and size at this point is going to be full of things like service objects, uh, full of things like decorator objects that are kind of trying to scratch this itch of where do I do the work, right? I've got data coming in, let's say interactions coming in from a controller. Eventually I've got to get stuff out the door to the view layer. And then I kind of don't really want to shove absolutely everything into these really fat models. So we start developing these um, kind of like band-aids around this problem. And I really feel like the context and using it as the boundary layer of your application and envisioning your Phoenix app as kind of like CRC writ large, right? Input coming in, let's say from a controller or from a web request, using your context as this boundary layer where work is done before you actually interact with the pure database interactions that might live in your core. And then kind of having the output of whatever comes out of your context being converted into something for the view. Um, that to me is a pattern that feels like it does have a really sane home for so many of the typical jobs that you need to do in a standard web application. And I think that leaves you with this entity, the context that actually can be used in the context, another pun, of something like PubSub, which I think, Lars, I would say it is just another kind of input output. Yes, it's internal to your application potentially, right? Like you're subscribing and publishing, you know, within the universe of your app, you're not sending it out to some, I don't know, third party, but um, it's like another portal through which communication between the entities and your application occurs. And I think one thing that's really nice about using CRC and using context really cleanly is that it gives you this truly reusable entity. Your context is going to fit just as well in your controller action, your live view, your handle info from a pub sub message, which could live anywhere in your application. And I don't think you're going to feel like that you're hitting up against a place where it doesn't belong in any of those scenarios. I like how you put it there, uh, Sophie. And I, I do like the idea that uh, like your context should be reusable across these different interfaces. So like you could use it for maybe the rest component. You could use these same components in your live view. You could use these same components in your, in your tests. And I think that's, that's one of the, the benefits that you get with it. Um, I've seen it in the real world where maybe your, uh, your product is a rest API for people to consume. Maybe you have a, like a SaaS company and then maybe you have some internal dashboards that are written in live view you still reach into the same context, maybe some slightly different function calls uh, in that context, but you could still reuse all those, uh, those building blocks for those two different purposes. So I really like that. And then for the, uh, the pub sub aspect, I've actually had a battle with this as well, Lars. Like where, where does it go? And I think I'll lean on uh, like Sasha Yurik's article. I don't think he was talking specifically about pub sub. I think he was, 
I think the example he used was uh, like for emails. Where do you send emails from? Do you send that from your uh, your controller or do you do that in your context? I think he argued that it should go in your context because that's part of the like that's part of that business logic that belongs in that context. It's not the controller's responsibility. The controller is just an interface, you know, a very specific interface into that context. But given that business logic belongs with the context, it should occur there. So I would say for the PubSub uh, uh, component, if it belongs with the, you know, with the business logic that, hey, all subscribers need to be notified that this, uh, this event transpired, stick it in the context. And I think I'm, I think I'm leaning towards that way as well now. It's really interesting. So first, you know, thanks for a fabulous conversation, right? I feel like there are these threads going on everywhere. One of the things that I've tried to do on Twitter lately is started to have some open-ended conversations where I'll just kind of throw out a prompt on, you know, some some type of problem that's that's teasing me a little bit, and I, and I kind of throw that concept out there. Well, one of the the insightful responses lately, I kind of asked, what are some of the heresies that that people kind of embrace. And, and one of the really cool ones was that I think in the context layer, it pays to really think through your error strategy. And if you want to be able to compose the results of the context cleanly, unless the tag tuple adds a whole lot to your user interface, it's probably be it's probably better to be raising exceptions there because you really add composition opportunities outside of that context. So yeah, I really like the way that you're that you're thinking about this, Alex. Yeah, actually that that Twitter thread and uh, the response you got there, uh, it was a prime Keith Lee drop, just throw a bunch of burning burning takes into the into the reply field. But uh, I don't think most of it is that controversial coming from him at this point because he has been very open about his thoughts on this uh, on on the Outlaws podcast. But I like that he does share this because there's no one way to do this. And like, he dropped large functions, lots of comments, no formatter, most error and term tuples should be exceptions. Composing queries and calling repo in Phoenix controllers. Avoiding contexts, generally. Avoid MVC if you want to build services with less code and using the process dictionary. These are all controversial to some extent. Yeah, and it's but wonderful. Also, yeah, I can absolutely see how this could serve me. It's just another way of doing it. It has a pretty different base philosophy but I also know that he's he spends a lot of time thinking about these things. And I, I find the nuance it brings to the conversation incredibly useful. And it does poke on some of my dissatisfaction with, with context as they are generated. I'm not entirely convinced of that, but that's also a very general case. I'm always happier when my contexts start getting better verbs than list and crud. Uh, because I think the verbs really do matter for, for getting the feel of the shape of your application. Yeah, so I really want to plug a couple of people here. You know, one is Chris Keithley, and, and I think that he's got some, some brilliant thoughts around what error checking should be in, in the Beam in Norm. I think that Norm is actually brilliant. 
And also shout out to Chris McCord. So he, from the very beginning with Phoenix, has been a fantastic live coder. And when you see him process ideas that, that are in the context, and when you see him naturally make decisions between tag tuples and errors and what goes in the context and how you open up the context beyond just persistence and how, you know, he did this thing with where he, for a while, where he would integrate with Wolfram in, in the, um, at Elixir conferences as he was kind of introducing channels. Um, you know, this, so seeing these, um, these two takes from brilliant software developers in Elixir has just given me a greater appreciation for both men and for also Jose to create a language that fits so well with both of these um, almost competing strategies and, and philosophies in development. Thank you for that, Bruce. I think that's actually a great note to uh, wrap up that conversation for today's episode, but I think we can all agree this was a really good one. I'll say for all of our listeners, um, Usually we have this process where if you would like to, you know, say something next, you'll sort of come off mute. And that's how we try not to talk over each other. But I can tell you that throughout this entire conversation, just everybody constantly coming off and on mute and trying to figure out who's going to speak when, because we all just had so much to say about this. So Lars, thank you so much for being our main host for today. My uh, pleasure. Really great convo and contact. Thanks. And we'll also say thank you, as always, to Graxio, our sponsor, Career Fuel for Programmers. I'd like to add a note here that we have a lot to say about contexts and boundary layers and, and the OTP, LiveView, and Ecto courses. It's, it's what we're about. We talk about these kinds of design issues. Yeah, very true. Great call out. Definitely recommend our listeners check out that content to dig a little bit more deeply into these topics. So thank you, everybody. Thank you, Bruce, Stephen, Lars, and Alex. And we will catch you guys next time on Beam Radio.